0: Well, good morning, everyone. And I'm so excited to be here. You have no idea what we're about to do. You have no idea how good this is going to get. What well, the passage we're about to enter into is so rich in wonder, it, it, it really is mind-blowing. But anyways, I'm going to get to that. So uh, where are we, right? We are currently uh, in the book of Romans, the letter that Paul is writing uh, to the church in Rome. He's writing it in preparation to moving his headquarters from Antioch to Rome uh, because of the strategic move that that will be for the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, in the world in which Paul lives. And so, Uh, This is a, a giant move for him, a good move for him. Being a Roman citizen, it is a door that's open to him, and he is going to take any opportunity he has that the world offers him to be able to move the gospel forward as we ought to as well. And so... Uh, As he writes this, you you may remember if you've been here, he's writing this letter into a a scenario in a church where the Gentile people and the Jewish people are doing church together. But there's been some complications because the Jewish people founded the church without the Gentiles. The Gentile people joined the church when the gospel became known uh, among the Gentiles. The Jewish people had to leave uh, uh, Rome because uh, they were kicked out leaving the Gentiles there to run the church. Now the Jewish people are back trying to step into leadership alongside the Gentiles. And in the best scenarios, that's complicated, right? In in the best case, that's going to create some who's who and who's better and who's what. So as Paul writes this letter into that scenario, instead of writing a letter specifically to try to get them unified, he uses that complicated scenario to unpack the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of its reality in such masterful fashion uh, that we get to now experience the intricacies, the complications, the complexities, and the simplicity and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, where are we in this letter, right? Right? Paul has begun uh, by essentially laying out a courtroom for us. Uh, He's put each of the players in their places. Initially, we thought that the Gentiles were in the condemned seat. The Jewish people, the people of God, were in the jury seat. And God was in the judgment seat. And Paul was partnering with the Jewish people to say, Boy, these Gentiles were terrible, weren't they? Man! Thank goodness for God's mercy, because without God's mercy, they would be dead, condemned. Unbelievable. They should be laying on their faces grateful for God. You should tell them. (laughs) That's what it felt like until what? In chapter two, he goes, oh, jury, you who judges, right? Uh, You pour judgment on yourself. You're not the jury box. You're the condemned shifts them into the condemned seat and spends chapter two unpacking why the people of God of that time, the Jewish people, were as condemned as the Gentile people, though the outward fruit of their condemnation was better buried than the Gentile people, right? And so then you remember in the beginning of chapter three, the Jewish people asked the right question. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. If we're as condemned as they are, then what good was it being a Jewish person? What good was it being uh, in the house with dad, being the older son, being the faithful one, being the dutiful son, when, when brother jerk ran out and, and did whatever he wants, and now you telling us we're the same as him? That's, that's pathetic. And so they're like, what good is that? What good was it to, to have all this? And Paul says, oh, oh, what good is it? You've been with dad the whole time. You have the law, you have the oracles, you have the revelation, you have the relationship, you have all of that. You have been saved from the disastrous run that the Gentiles had and all the horrid fruit born out of their insanity that should have been born out of you because you're just as condemned as they are, but he rescued you from a bunch of that horrid fruit. Man. So this is what we do, people. The very next thing is, oh yeah, we are better off than they are. Like, literally, you just can't, you can't do it, can you? You can't do it. That, that's what Paul's trying to say. So the next thing the Jewish people are going to do is, oh, good, good. No, I'm, I'm, I, I knew we were better off than they. I just I got confused on chapter 2 where you were all like, I'm condemned. And then I'm like, I'm, I'm like them. And, and now you've reminded me I'm not like them. I'm better off because I have the oracles of God. So what is Paul going to do next? Oh, yeah, you already know it, don't you? He's like, no, 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 no. Hold your horses. Wait, wait, I'm, not, I'm not saying you're better off than them. I'm saying having the gift of God's revelation certainly was wondrous. But what, what did it do in affecting you and, and, and making you uh, uh, appropriate before God, ready to stand before God? Let's take a, a look. So we are in the middle of that conversation. We're going to go to Romans chapter 3 if you have your Bibles with you. Uh, You can go to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in verse uh, 9. If you're using a smart device, Romans 3, 9. If you're using your own Bible, Romans 3, 9. And if you're using one of our Bibles, it's page 1041, okay? Page 1041, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. So Paul has just really let the Jewish people know that the advantage to having God and being the people of God and having the law was extraordinary. Okay? So, so that's what we're coming out of. No, no, there's great advantage to being Jewish and the people of God during that time. And then he says in verse 9, what then? Okay, so, so this what then, whenever you, you start a conversation with what then, you have to look back, right? It's like the therefore, except this is the question version of that. You're not going to do a statement, you're going to do a question. So, considering everything I've said, what should we conclude then, right? What should we realize? What should we see? This is the great moment in the communication between two people or a person in a group going, we've heard all the evidence now. Where does this land us? Are you better off? Are you not? If you are, what does that mean? If you're not, what does that mean? Here we are. Ta-da! What then? What then? Are we Jews any better off? So... Now, now, Paul is speaking into the immediate context, which is the paragraph before that, you're better off, right? right? He just said, you're better off because you had the law. And now he's asking, so what then are you better off? Because I just told you this was awesome. But he's also tying the what then are you better off to the entire chapter two and the entire chapter one. So this is not just the conclusion of the previous paragraph. You had the the revelation, the oracles of God, that's awesome, what then are you better off? He's saying, you had the oracles of God, the revelation of God, the relationship with God, we know that was awesome, but considering chapter one and considering chapter two and considering that you are the recipients of all this, are you indeed, with all the evidence accumulated, are you better off than the Gentiles, than the pagans? Okay, here we go what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. No, 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 not not at all. Now, I I just want to, I just want to place this on the table for you. Because, because it is easy, because we're going to talk a lot of Jewish context now. Because Paul is speaking to whom? Directly to the Jewish people. And when we study scripture, scripture is first written to the people it's written to. And secondarily, we extract truth from that, right? He didn't write to the 2017 American culture. He, he wasn't, he said, so are we Jews better off? So he's not writing to us, though there's tons to extract. But I'm, I'm going to place this on the table for you so that your mind connects to your own heart, right? Essentially, he's writing to the people who go to church regularly. Okay? So, so I'm just going to throw that on the table. This is a good passage for all of us because though we know Jesus... I think we often still believe that there are parts of ourselves that just make us so good for God, right? Come on now. And I'm just putting that on the table so that as you hear this conversation to people thousands of years ago, that you can kind of look at a distance, that it has a little string tied back to those spaces in your heart and mine where we believe things we ought not to. Okay, here we go. Back to the Jewish people. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Okay, so uh, here's the thing. Remember, we're dealing with the law, which brings us righteousness so that we might live righteously, so that we might be right before God, so that we would not be condemned to death eternally, but have eternal life, okay? So that's the sequence we're in. You do bad things. The law is righteousness personified in its, in its uh, uh, expression. You just need to do what it says, then you can have the gift of life and not be condemned. That, that's where we're at. And what we're asking now is, uh, those who were not under the law... Uh, What about them? Okay, well, they're clearly condemned because they didn't have the law. They didn't know, and so they acted and behaved just like you would expect any human being to act and behave without the law, okay? Check that box. Done. Now, you who were under the law, you had the law. How'd that go for you? Did you see how he subtly changed the word here from uh, all are under the law? right? Because remember earlier in Romans 1 and 2, he said, look, those who have the law, they're under the law, and those who don't have the law, they're under the law, right? One group just didn't know that, and the other group did know that. So how did that go for the two groups? And now he's saying, all people, both Greek and Jew, both Gentile and Jew, are under what? They're under sin. So now we're beginning to see that the law is not doing what we hoped it would do because it's leaving both groups still under something other than the law, under sin, under sin. Now, I'm going to get ahead of myself for a second. Bear with me. What Paul is beginning to do in this passage, this passage is a Unbelievable foundation piece to all of the rest of the book of Romans. He's beginning to shift sin from one category to another category right here in this passage. He's moving sin from Uh, The missing of a mark that God gave us, therefore diminishing our human freedom and flourishing. That's what sin could be. You have a mark, you shoot for it, you get it, you flourish, you're free. You don't get it, you diminish being free and flourishing as a human. And he's shifting it from that category, which is a behavioral category, and he's moving it to a malevolent force that enslaves people and communities. I hope you caught that, because that's a giant shift, okay? Now, we're going to get to that later. I'm just getting ahead of myself, because there's so much here. Uh, So anyways, sorry about that. Okay, so Romans, Romans chapter three, let's see what happens now. So, so we're all under sin. Now what happens next? What Paul does here in this next section of scripture is honestly one of the most fascinating things to read. It really, really is. Because Paul is going to quote from the Old Testament now. He's gonna quote for the people that are Jewish, why would he do that? So he's gonna quote a whole bunch of sentences structured together to create a little speech about us being under sin and therefore us being sin and therefore sin being a force in us that is coming out of us and that our behaviors are just an expression of the darkness that is within us like a grave of death inside of us. He's gonna do all of that in a paragraph that you could have just written by hand except that every word in this paragraph is quoted out of the Old Testament and wait for it, it's not quoted from one passage; it's quoted from a bunch of them. Listen to this: what we're about to read, one little paragraph, is a quote from Ecclesiastes seven twenty, Psalm 14:1, Psalm fourteen fifty three, Psalm five nine, Psalm five thirteen and fourteen, Psalm one forty three, Psalm ten seven, Isaiah fifty nine seven and eight, and Psalm thirty six two. All of it in this little passage. So you will not find this whole passage in the Old Testament because Paul is pulling from everywhere. And do you know why he's doing that? Do you know why he's doing that? Because when he's done, here's what he's going to say. Where does the Old Testament leave you and I? And he's speaking specifically to the Jewish people. So he's going to go, your Old Testament that you hold up as your Savior, where does it leave you? It condemns you. He's already said it. This is not new news. This has been riddled throughout The Torah, throughout the law, throughout the Old Testament. Listen now, here we go. Buckle up. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, when I read that, You just think you're just kind of writing emotionally, right? And you're just taking truth and going, man, do you want to know how condemned you are? All of this. But he's not just writing it. He's pulling it from all these places. And you know what's super crazy about this? All of these descriptions in the Old Testament tie to describing who? The Gentiles? No, no. If you go back to each of those scriptures, you'll see it is God mad at the people and going, you all who belong to me, this is how you're behaving. So, so being Jewish, you will have memorized uh, large portions of the Old Testament, and, and, and if not memorized, uh, these particular, you would be very familiar with the entire Old Testament. Remember, we've talked about this, that in the Jewish culture, movie quotes to us are scripture quotes to them, right? So you, you say, uh, I'll be back, and you're like, oh, oh, Terminator, or you say, you had me at a hello, and you oh, I know that one too, and you say all these things, uh, when, when in the Jewish culture, if you said a verse, immediately the entire passage would come to mind, even if you didn't know the verse word for word. You knew the passage. So as Paul is doing this, understand that the Jewish people in the Roman church, uh, the the second the the sentence is said, they're like, Psalm 14, shoot. Psalm 36, darn it. Ecclesiastes 7, oh, he's so right. See, that's what's happening to them. This is bad news for the Jewish people, right? This is bad news. Let's take a quick look at it, just so we're clear on, on the picture that's been drawn. None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. So that's pretty obvious, right? No matter how obedient you are some of the time, your heart is constantly bent against God and against you, isn't it? It's like doing the wrong thing is a cakewalk and doing the right thing is such a burden, isn't no? that? See, this is what the law does by itself. In of itself, it creates a weight on the shoulders of the human because their sin is against the law and against them. And as hard as we fight, the sin prevails. Why? Because it is not simply missing the mark, diminishing a flourishing freedom. It is a malevolent force that enslaves humans Enslaves people, enslaves communities. Paul is in the process of setting up sin for what it really is. It has you, and you cannot escape. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. What incredible language, what worth do you bring to God that makes you worthy of his love, worthy of his grace, worthy of his righteous judgment to say you are indeed righteous enough to interact with me. You are worthless, it says. What you bring is worthless. It conjures up images out of Isaiah and other passages where all of our good works are like dirty rags to the king, right? Okay, listen to this. Here we go. Watch this. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Yeah. You remember when Lazarus died and Jesus came to resurrect him and it had been a couple of days? And, there, and Jesus said, open, open the grave. And everybody kind of went a little ballistic. And they're like, no, 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 you, you don't understand. Like, you don't open a grave that's like days old. Why not? Anybody guess? Oh, <laughs> uh, you don't have to, do you? <laughs> You're like, stand back! Because what comes out of a grave when you open the doors after a few days is what? The stench of death. You don't want to walk in because what you see is the rotting of flesh. Everything terrible that you can imagine sits inside that grave, including all the nightmares that you and I hold within our own hearts, isn't it? And what did he just say? Do you, know, do you know what the human is like because sin has entered the world? When we open our mouths, it is like opening up a grave. And what comes out of our mouths is the death and the rot that is that grave. This is out of the, this is out of the Old Testament. Look at this. They use their tongue to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. This is just a description of every human agenda on planet earth, right? When you're nice, you're nice because you need someone to be nice. When you, when you navigate with good manners, you do it. We teach our kids this. You better have good manners because otherwise you're not going to make it in the world. You see, good manners are not about good manners. They're about making it in the world, right? Right? They're about, and and so we we, we perpetuate in our own minds, I will do whatever is necessary to navigate this planet and the other humans. And so he says, even when you are being nice, deception is on your lips and you are manipulating. Their feet are swift to shed blood. You drive in traffic. (laughs) Enough said. Well, I didn't actually kill them. Yeah, but you thought about it. In their paths are ruin and misery... And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We've said this before, but remember the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom according to the Old Testament. It is not the be afraid, though there is a component to that, honestly. You ought to have a righteous afraidness of someone who literally causes you to exist. And if he chooses not to, you cease. Just saying you ought to be a bit afraid, right? I think there is a healthy amount of going. I stand here and I breathe and I am conscious because God is choosing me to be so. He, is, he doesn't hold the power to kill me. He sustains me to live. He, 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 I don't live if he stops thinking about me. He stops thinking about me, Renaud's gone. We ought to have a certain righteous afraidness of that. But that fear drives us To bring ourselves to this creator and to say, I'm guessing I ought to submit to you versus you submitting to me just going to throw that on the table, right? See, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, the recognition of God, the understanding of God. And then that part of the human heart that goes, wow, if that's who God is, then I get where I stand. And I ought to approach him in a posture of humility and a posture of submission, not a posture of arrogance and a posture of demanding, right? now the father who loves us once we approach him and we understand his mercy guess what he tells us ask what you need when you when you need to be a little demanding i get that you're a three-year-old and when three-year-olds are demanding to their parents we kind of giggle right (laughs) look at the little three-year-old i'm sick of you i want the lollipop (laughs) sounds wonderful so there is a beauty in our relationship with God that says, despite the fact that you ought to be humble and fearful when you behave like a three-year-old and you're arrogant and prideful, I'll giggle a bit. But we ought to start, see, we don't, even, we don't even begin to understand our relationship with God until we begin to understand who God is and we become just a tad afraid. So the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And what does he say here? There is no fear of God before your eyes. This is a terrible thing to say about someone when the authority figure in their life is somebody that cares deeply for them and you suddenly realize there is no sense of that authority, then we say you have lost that person, right? If one of your children suddenly decides that you are no longer an authority figure in their life whatsoever and they give you no sense of a certain, uh, you know, this, this is my parent and they can affect consequences and things, then you lose them. You understand that, right? Then, then it, they're lost, and that's the most dangerous human space on planet earth when we are lost to authority in our life. And this is what he's saying. When you have no fear of God, then you are as lost as lost can be. <clears throat> Verse 19, watch. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So do you see what he just did? <clears throat> he just wove together a boatload of scriptures all over the Old Testament. He brought them together, and he says about this boatload of scriptures, we know that whoever is under the law, which, remember, that's what the Jewish people brought to the table as their defense, right? We have the Old Testament, boom. We have the revelation of God, boom. We have the law, boom, and we've lived in it, boom. Under it, boom. He's like, "You, you know what happens to those under the law, right? When the law says, This. Whoops. Wrong defense. Do you see what he just did? Now, I'm going to tell you this. Again, we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but you got to understand how wondrous it is that the Spirit of God is revealing these things to Paul and Paul is writing them through how God wired him that even in the midst of this terrible news, this horrid revelation, do you know that Paul in this passage has woven the entire story of Christ and his redemptive work and the cross and our salvation and everything else into these very passages? You go, how? I didn't read anything about Jesus. It was all terrible. Yes, but do you know what's awesome? If you go back to these passages and you read them, every one of them starts with, you are condemned because you are this. And then it circles around to a presentation of God becoming the redeemer. So if you went back and you read them all, you'd go, wait a second. How did we end up knowing this and we still made it? And if you read on, I'm just going to give you one example. Is that okay? I'm just going to jump real quick. Let's go to Isaiah, which is where really the quotes end in that passage. Look at Isaiah. So Isaiah 59 was the passage that this was quoted out of. Uh, Listen to this. Find it, no, Find it. There it is. Okay. Isaiah 59. So the quote in here that is from Isaiah 59, page 690 of our Bibles, verse 7. Listen. So this was the quote, Verse 7. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highway. The way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their path. They have made their road crooked. No one who treads... On them knows peace. So do you recognize the language there? That's the quote uh, that came out of this. Now, Isaiah 59 condemns the people of God in this passage. But look at this. Look at Isaiah 59 verse 16. Look, 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 look. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So it says God looked at his people and he looked for one who might intercede to rescue this disaster zone of humanity and there was no one. So look what he does. Look what he does. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So we're talking now about a prophecy about the Messiah. Look, go a little further down to, uh, to verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to, who, uh, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions, declares the Lord. You see, every one of these passages that he's using from the Old testament to declare our guilt as the jewish people it are also tied to a declaration of an answer that is beyond ourselves do you see what paul is doing do you see what he's doing do you see why i said this passage is the entire setup of all that is to come in the book of romans it is the revelation of our need for god because we are condemned and yet it is the secret hidden message that there is an answer to your condemnation but we just haven't gotten there yet So do not lose hope in the shock and awe, but be shocked and awed. Do you see what I'm saying? Do not lose hope, but before we talk hope, we gotta sit a little bit in some shock and awe, okay? And not the kind of awe like good awe, like awe, watch, 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 shock and awe. Here we come. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, watch now, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So this is both a term in a courtroom as well as a beautiful picture of another room I will describe to you in a second. Watch this, okay? So when you say every mouth should be stopped in the, in the Jewish terminology and in the courtroom, it was like you taking your hand and putting it over your mouth like this. And it was a sign to say, I have nothing left to say. I have brought my whole defense to the table. There is no more. I have all the witnesses have stood in for me. I have nothing left, so I am silenced. And in my silence, I sit now at the mercy of the judge to either be condemned or to be justified, okay? To be made just. But I am silenced. And so he says, Look, when we're done with the law, it silences the mouths of humans. Doesn't matter who you are Gentile, you are silenced. Jew, you are silenced pagan, crazy, living out there in the world, agnostic in all your ways. You are silenced, churchgoer, dutiful, awesome person who loves everything about this. You are silenced. We are all silenced because we stand condemned and not just silenced, but held accountable. See that word held accountable is not like we think of accountability in the church. I will hold you accountable. I will nicely come to you and ask you what you're doing wrong and then I'll, I'll encourage you toward goodness, right? Now this is that kind of held accountable like you are gonna pay for this. It is, it is insinuating the judgment is now on you and you are gonna be held to what you owe and what you owe is death. Mm. Okay, watch, 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 watch. For by works of the law, No human being will be justified In his sight. Works of the law is an incredible way to put this. And why would Paul now say, instead of saying, by the law, which is what he's been doing, why does he add this dynamic of works of the law? So in the Jewish culture, there were four primary groups uh, that made up the Jewish people. There were sects beyond these, but the primary ones were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. And so these four groups, they were not unified. They saw themselves as better than the other three three groups. And like we do in the church sometimes where we go, we, this church, we're good with God and we're, we're definitely going to heaven. But that other church that is the other one, that other denomination, oh my gosh, with what they believe, they are certainly off to hell. And you go, no, we don't do that. Oh, yes, we do. I've sat in multiple conversations like that with people, and I'm like, and the, you know, this denomination believes that denomination doesn't know what they're talking about, and they're off to hell, and they believe this denomination's off to hell, and we're all off to hell except for us. And so that's how the Jewish people functioned. The Essenes believed that they had the answer to a connection with God because they separated themselves out from the world completely. They went and lived in the hills and they dedicated themselves unrelentingly to the following of the law. So that, this is what they would say. Listen to this now. They would say, we hold the works of the law, not the law, but the works of the law. And we fulfill the works of the law. And so the evidence we bring to the table to be justified before God is that we better than anyone else fulfill the? works of the law then the pharisees said no 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 no, no. you have a part of the works of the law and that you legalistically live in the mountains but what about all the parts of the law where we are supposed to be engaged with the culture and care for them those are also part of the law and we hold the works of the law you don't you only hold a part of the work so come when it when it comes time and jesus says bring the works of the law to the table pharisees win baby pharisees win the Sadducees were like, you guys don't know the works of the law. We are right in the midst of the Roman culture. We are working against the Roman culture for the people of God. We are are making sure they don't think we're terrible so that they don't kill us all. We are the saviors of the people of God. We hold the works of the law. You all just don't understand them in your naivety. And then the zealots were like, you know what the law says? The law says that when we are under oppression, we rise up in power through the power of God and we overcome. Do you remember the entire law about David fighting the enemies and Gideon fighting the enemies? We hold the works of the law. We are the warriors of God because the zealots would go fight. So who holds the works of the law? So Paul here, isn't it beautiful? how he uses everyday stuff that they're dealing with. They literally probably 10 minutes ago before the letter were arguing about who actually holds the works of the law. And Paul goes, there is no works of the law that justifies any human before God. Bring them. Asseans, bring them. Pharisees, come on, come on, on the table. Sadducees, can't wait. Zealots, boy, you guys awesome. No, 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 and no. Gentiles, anything? No, you you were silenced in chapter one. So we're good. Do you see what he just did? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Now, Now, this is a hard place, you understand, right? Because here's the other picture. You're silenced because the truth has silenced you. But here's the other picture of silence, okay? Have you ever sat in a doctor's office? Oh, you already know where I'm going, don't you? Have you ever sat in a doctor's office and there was a test run? and you're nervous because this particular kind of test and based on some of the fruit could mean something. It could. And then you sit in the doctor's office and you can see it in his or her eyes. Can't you? This is not good news. And then they say, "Hmm. I am sorry to have to be the one to bear this news for you, but it is cancer and it is bad. Do you know what you do in that moment? Think about your physical reaction. Does this, does this seem appropriate? See, isn't that a beautiful picture of shocking news? It silences us, doesn't it? We just kind of go. You're processing. What do you say? There's so many questions. What do you say? Are, are, we, are we sure? How sh- is, are there other tests we can do? Is this test soundproof? Because if it's not, I, can I get a second opinion? I mean, how sure are we? No, no, no. You, you don't understand. You see, I've, I've lived well. I, I ate wheatgrass a lot. <laughs> I exercise. I'm, I'm sorry, it's bad news. See, that's the picture that this next verse brings to the table. Take a look. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I want to leave you with this picture. You see, this is where the Jewish people got it wrong, where we often get it wrong. The law, we thought, was the treatment to our problem. Because we thought our problem was a behavioral problem. We didn't know what the mark was. And so when the law came and showed us the mark, we had something to shoot for. And so progressively over time, we get better at shooting at the mark and the law becomes the answer for us to be able to become righteous because we shoot at the mark because sin is missing the mark and diminishing human freedom and flourishing. Make sense? But what if sin was not missing the mark diminishing human freedom and flourishing. What if sin was a malevolent disease, a horrid force that enslaved the hearts and minds of people and the world and all of creation, and it was eroding everything that was life. And we had no strength to overcome that, no means, no matter how many times we shot at the mark, no matter how many times we tried, what would undo us is a malevolent force of slavery inside of our souls that has made us dead to life. And when that is sin, then this happens. It can't be that bad. No, no, it's that bad. I must, there must be a way. There is no way. This is not a behavioral problem and sin, sin was not solved by the law. So what was the law then? What good was the law? Do you want to know? You would not even know you had cancer to be able to affect any kind of treatment if you didn't get an MRI or whatever other machine they use to see inside what we cannot see. See the bruising or the, or the coughing or the headaches. They may just be bruising, coughing or headaches. That's the hope, isn't it? But you need to get a, a look inside to make sure they're just bruising, coughing and headaches and not more. And when the machine has done its work, the machine produces news, nothing more. The machine doesn't fix cancer. The machine only tells you you have it. So how much do you like that machine? Well, in many ways you love that machine why because thank god it revealed to you what needed to be revealed because otherwise you would live in the naivety of thinking it's just a bruise a headache or a cough and you would be dead soon but now you got a shot at seeking out a treatment that might save you from the outcome of this cancer it gives you a shot. So you hate the MRI because it was what brought the bad news. That's why so many people don't go to the hospital. (laughs) I don't want to go. Why not? It might be bad news. I don't understand. (laughs) But then I do understand the human doesn't want to hear bad news, but you need the bad news to begin a journey into discovering whether there is a way out. Sin is a malevolent force enslaving the hearts of people and communities. It has and will continue to overcome us in of ourselves. And the law revealed that to us. Thank you, law. The law is bad news to a sinner, good news to a non-sinner. What do you mean sinner? A person with a disease. Okay, it's bad news to a person with a disease. Who has the disease? The Jews do. The Gentiles do. Who are you? Well, you're either Jewish or Gentile. I can tell you that. So everyone does. We hate the law when we discover what it's for. And we love the law when we discover what it's for. But the law doesn't save us. God doesn't grade on a scale. Because he's not grading behavior. God sees a disease. And the disease is killing us. And what did he whisper to us when he wove together those beautiful passages out of the Old Testament? What did he whisper to us? There is a solution to your disease. Okay. We're back in the doctor's office for a second. You've just heard the news. Your hand is over your mouth. There's a red folder sitting on the corner of the doctor's desk. Have you ever seen those? It's got a couple things and it. it's the only thing on the desk. Are you wondering about the folder? I am too. The doctor wouldn't have that folder on his desk unless he was going to go like this. I want you to look at something. The kind of cancer you have, this is going to be very out of the box, unconventional. But there's something I want you to look at. You see that, that folder? What does that folder feel like to you? Oh my goodness, could that be? Okay, so Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But we're not going to go there today. (laughs) Do you know why? Because we have forgotten the malevolent nature of sin. Even though we know Jesus, many of us, we still think sin is a set of behaviors and we're still just trying to behave rightly. Now that we have Jesus, we just have a better shot at behaving rightly. That's not true. That's not true. Sin is just as malevolent as ever. The only thing that has happened is that the sin in you, if you know Jesus, has been undone and the disease has been healed, and the fruit will still be felt for a temporary period of time, but the ultimate end is not death, but life. Oops, I just got ahead of myself. Let's stop here. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want to do this week. I want us to lament. Do you know what the word lament means? It's a beautiful word. It it does mean grieve, but it's more than grieve. It is like a grief that is born out of a place where you want to cry out. Every time there was a a lament in scripture, there was a crying out. It was a releasing. It wasn't a holding onto grief. It was a releasing of grief. It was a expressing of grief. It was just like a, no, 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 no. So we're going to lament this week. Not because we have no hope, because we know the red folders on the table, but because we know That what we thought we could bring to the table, we can't. And what we thought sin was, it is not. It is much more horrid than we thought. And what we need is out of the box from the conventional wisdom of you just eat healthier, run harder, exercise more, do better, and it will go away. No, no, not this one. Paul has set the table for Romans 3.21 and onward. And once we see the red folder and he spends the rest of Romans opening that folder and unpacking it, the amount of beauty that's going to come out of this folder will, will blow your minds. But we cannot even open the folder and experience it until we sit like this. So we sit here today. Sin is terrible. It has destroyed you and me and our community and our world and all of creation. And we are sick of it. And we must see it for what it is. Let's pray. God, thank you for the law that it has revealed to us our unrighteousness, not just in our behaviors, but in the malevolent horror of the disease that sits within our hearts and flesh and soul that has made us dead to you, dead in our transgressions so that we will, no matter our effort, eventually chase after the things that are not you, not fearing you, but being full of death. Help us to see clearly the weight of sin so that we would know the grace of mercy. Help us to sit in the nature of sin as a force of enslavement so that we might recognize our freedom. Remind us that the narrative you are producing for us is Pharaoh as sin, the Red Sea as jesus rising from the dead after paying for our sin the law as the spirit of god to guide us in this new way and the promised land as our eternal life may we begin our journey now with just pharaoh just sin and to see the enslavement that he has affected on us and may we sit in that lament as we ought to until it has fully found its way into our hearts and minds so that we might be looking at that red folder on the table with such anticipation that we cannot wait any longer for you to open it for us and unpack for us what could be perhaps the hope in our hopeless and condemned scenario we love you We thank you for your love for us. And God, I can't tell you how thankful we are that there's a red folder on this table. We love you, Jesus. Amen.